she was running late and she was really frustrated. She was running late for her plane in Denver. Denver International Airport, there evidently had been an accident, a large crash in Aurora that caused GPS applications to try to give her and other drivers another way to the airport. And she saw that Google Maps was telling her, hang a right down this gravel road. And, and she saw a whole bunch of other cars, probably 100 cars doing the same thing. She figured, this is the shortcut. They're rerouting me around the traffic. And she got further down this road cars in front of her started to slow down and stop and she realized that her own wheels were spinning but she was no longer moving forward in fact she realized that the longer she put her pedal on put her foot to the pedal the the more she seemed to be sinking down into the earth it was a private road and unbeknownst to google maps it was also dirt and there had been a very large rain, and it was now impassable. And she, Connie Monzies, together with about 100 other drivers, all following their smartphones, ended up stuck and bogged down in mud. She said, my thought was, well, there are all these other cars in front of me, so it must be okay. It wasn't. It's a picture of what can fairly easily happen to our souls when we lose sight of Jesus and all that he is for us in his grace. We can end up following everybody else because everybody else is going this way and their instructions saying this is the way to go and yet we can easily find ourselves spiritually sinking and we end up stuck. I mean, we've all been there at some point where we're looking at our lives and we're doing inventory and we're thinking, I am not spiritually and relationally where I want to be. And I don't know how I got here, but I'm stuck. And I don't know how to move forward. And I can't go backward. And I don't know what to do. And I'm sinking. If that's you, friends, we're going to look at two of Jesus' disciples this morning. Their accounts are interwoven in the gospel according to Luke because there are two disciples who found themselves in much the same place, sinking, stuck, not really knowing how they got here or how to move forward. And they're uh, a model for us to see the two very different ways to deal with it. This is the gospel according to Luke. We're going to be uh, looking, beginning in chapter 22, we're going to look at the first six verses, and then we're going to jump ahead to four other sets of verses in this same chapter. This is God's gospel. Now, the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Later on, Passover, we read, and Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. 
and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And later, Peter says it's not him. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd, while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of a courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. What do we see here? We see that both Peter and Judas renounce Jesus. Jesus tells them both beforehand. He tells Judas that he's going to betray him at the Lord's uh, the Passover table. And he tells uh, Peter right after that that he's going to deny him not once, not twice, but three times in triplicate. Uh, you know, and Judas betrays Jesus for money. He gets 30 pieces of silver. You know, we read here that, you know, they offered to pay him. He consented and then looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus when there wouldn't be a crowd around because they were afraid of the crowds. The crowds would riot, uh, potentially. Judas does it for money. Peter does it for self-protection. Uh, Peter knows that he is one of Jesus' closest disciples. Peter, James, and John were the three that were really tight with Jesus. And thousands and thousands of people saw him. And so he is realizing that if he is recognized with Jesus, Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is going to get crucified. And he realizes if Jesus gets crucified and he's with Jesus, there's a very high likelihood that he too will get the death penalty. And he's afraid for his life. He hasn't had time to think about it for a long time, but he does it once, and then he does it again, and then he denies Jesus a third time, insisting 
that he does not know Jesus to protect his own skin. I think we can be very naive about how easily we can be led astray by our own hearts, by our own worries, our own fears, our own pride. I have watched with sorrow as professing believers have drifted slowly away from God. It's like watching a very slow train wreck. First, they, they just find themselves really busy, too busy to necessarily be at church or, 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 or to have a devotional life or to be part of the life in the community of the church. And then they're out of town a lot, and then their kids have commitments on Sundays, and then it gets the, then heaven forbid the cards end up in the World Series. You know, see y'all afterwards. Uh, you know, it's just, it's so easy um, Am I saying there's never a reason to skip a worship service on a Sunday? No, I'm not saying that. If you have COVID, please stay home. If you're on vacation in a Spanish-speaking country and, and you only know three phrases of tourist Spanish, I'm sure God will receive your private worship at home just fine. But what, what often happens is that with repetition, our priorities begin to change. Our heart begins to readjusting what it values and worshiping God because just because he's worthy of worship and we were made for him to be in relationship with him it's where we find life it, it becomes optional and identifying with Jesus becomes less of a priority and then things that were once really important to you suddenly are things to be skipped or dreaded and while you'll never admit that you consider God unimportant our, our actions at this point often speak more loudly than our our words, prayer and devotional practices no longer are important. Scripture has less and less impact on your life choices. The word of God has much less power in your lives. Jesus is less and less beautiful to you. And eventually your, your life begins to look exactly like your non-Christian neighbors. Um, and we realize with St. Paul, with you know St. Peter, that we've just denied Christ because we love the comforts of this life and we want to protect ourselves. And with Peter, this all happened very quickly, but for most of us, it actually happens very gradually. We, we drift. It's what, uh, uh, what we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, the, the author writes, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What's it mean to drift? Um, when I was probably about seven years old, uh, my, my family had a, a 1974 Chevy Vega. Are there any other past Vega drivers in the room? Yes, we got some, woohoo! Yeah, uh, it, was, it was a nice, heavy metal car, small, but 2,200 pounds. And I remember it was parked on the street in front of our, our house on a hill. And I was in the middle of the street, a bunch of other kids a little older than me were in the middle of the street. And, and one of them, I think it was Steve Holt across the street, noticed that the, the car was moving ever so slightly downhill backward. And all the bigger boys went up and got behind it, and it was getting faster and faster. I mean, it was really moving fast. And, and, and I was just sitting there watching because I could tell that these, like, six or eight boys probably weighed 300 pounds between them, and that was a 2,200-pound car. And I knew that they were just going to be very soft, squishy speed bumps. And... And so I wasn't going to touch it. But, but I did notice my mom very rapidly running out of the house and getting in the car and putting on the, yes, the emergency brake. And it stopped. See, evidently, whoever had driven it last had forgotten to engage the emergency brake. And 
that 1974 Chevy Vega, 2,200 pounds, was moving ever so slightly backwards, a tenth of a millimeter a second, and then a half a millimeter a second, and then a millimeter a second, then a centimeter a second, then a meter every few seconds, and if something hadn't intervened, that was that car was going to end up, that Vega was going to end up at the bottom of the hill, around the corner, into the neighbor's living room. It was just going to happen. That's what it means to drift. You don't notice it at first. Drifting is very dangerous. It says, be careful that you do not drift away. I remember one friend of mine, I was I a was, uh, groomsman in his wedding and uh, back in the 1990s, and he was faithfully coming to church, reading his Bible, reading Christian books, reading J.I. Packers, knowing God, getting really excited, and then um, he ended up getting married, and then they started coming to church twice a month, and once a month, and then every now and then, and, and he just drifted away, and I remember running into him at a bar probably 10 years later, and he said, yeah, we don't really believe like we used to, and I thought, well, no surprise. You've starved your soul to death. You drifted. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're naive if, it think, if you think it can't happen to me, if it can't happen to you. If it happened to Peter, who walked with Jesus three years, it can happen to any of us. I remember in college as a young believer, uh, Bill, my campus minister, gave a talk called Don't Be a Demas. And I remember thinking, well, I wonder what that means. And he did a character study of the figure Demas in the New Testament, D-E-M-A-S, Demas. And uh, Demas was one of Paul's fellow workers in Philemon 1, together with Mark and Luke and the others. Um, you know, during Paul's first imprisonment with Rome, he was there with Paul, taking care of Paul. During Paul's second imprisonment, there's some reason, some evidence to believe that he was there as well. And then something happened. He forsook Paul, left the ministry, and Paul wrote about the sad situation. He said, Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know all the details of what this looked like or what entailed, but scripture is clear that Demas had a greater love. He loved the world more than Jesus. And when things got hot, when things got difficult, he drifted away uh, because he loved the world. These things involve the affections, the thoughts of the heart that we can't always understand. Don't naively think you're immune Judas abandoned Christ, and so did Peter. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I mean, Jesus does refer to us as sheep. And the thing about sheep is that sheep get lost. Sheep get in trouble. Sheep can wander. We've got a video. Could we get that video? I think I've seen, shown you this before, but it's a video of, of what it means that we're sheep. We've all been there, you know, we get stuck in the mud, head down, cannot get out, don't know what we're going to do. It's awful. We're sheep, Jesus says. That's a term of endearment. He's saying, I love you and hold you close to my breast, even though you go get stuck in holes. I watched one where the sheep, they, they, they pulled a sheep out of a ditch 
and it was like a big long trench. And it was so happy, and it bounded away right back into the ditch. And, and I'm like, that is so me. Uh, on a bad day, maybe on a good day, I don't know. You know, just we, we end up getting stuck spiritually. We end up trapped in our own regrets. And, and we realize we've lost our way, and I don't know how to get back. And we end up in relationships that aren't centered on Christ. We end up realizing that we've become addicted to food or drink or alcohol or substances or whatever experiences. We realize that there are areas of our life that we've held on to and not surrendered to Jesus. We've held back chips for ourselves, and then we get stuck. Because God's going to make sure we get stuck because he loves us, and he doesn't want us to end up destroying ourselves. We're every bit as capable of turning our backs on Jesus as was Peter. We he see here that both Judas and Peter renounced Jesus. And yet we also see that both Peter and Judas deeply regret what they've done. Uh, they're both grieved over it. I mean, put yourself at the scene. Peter just denied Christ for the third time, and the rooster crows, and he looks up, and it says that Jesus is watching him as he's denying him. I mean, talk about caught in the act. They are exchanging eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball glances, and Peter is just cut to the heart. Uh, he, he, you know, and he remembers what Jesus had told him, that he was going to do this. And we, we read that he went outside and wept bitterly. You know, he's realizing he's just betrayed his best friend Jesus in order to extend his own life. He saw his best friend Jesus watch him betray him, commit treason against his Redeemer. And he did it not once, not twice, but three times in a row. One author describes their own sense of shame at how they in middle school betrayed their only friend. He writes this, he says, right after I finished sixth grade, my family moved to a new town and we didn't know anybody in that town. And, and so I remember going to class and I felt so alone and nobody wanted to talk to me and nobody knew me. And then one day uh, a kid named Earl invited me to come over to his house after school. And I jumped at it. He was kind of like the other kids, but he had really shiny hair. He wasn't particularly good at personal hygiene, but near his house was a parking lot and and the electric company parked its big trucks and heavy equipment there, and Earl knew how to sneak into the lot, and so they would crawl through all of this heavy equipment, these big trucks and whatnot. And, and, and so he says, Earl and I began to build a friendship. But after a couple months of sizing up this seventh-grade classroom, I made an important realization. The kids who were most popular, the kids who were really good at sports, the kids who had the best clothes, the kids whom the girls all whispered about and blushed over were not Earl. They were two guys named Mike and Eddie. And so when Mike and Eddie invited me over to their house, I was thrilled. Uh, you know, this was my ticket to the big time. I was going to be popular. I was going to be one of the cool kids. But there was one little tiny itty-bitty problem. Wherever cool Mike and Eddie were, Earl was not. And wherever Earl was, Cool, Mike and Eddie were not. And he says, if I was going to hang out with Mike and Eddie, I could no longer be seen with Earl. So I made a decision. I went over to Mike's and Eddie's houses, and I struck up a friendship with them. And I became in with the popular kids. And when Earl called me, I just kept putting him off, saying, I'm uh, kind of busy. All those years since that time, there's still a shame around my betrayal. Because the truth is this. 
I betrayed my only friend, Earl. I handed him another rejection in his life when he probably had so many, but I wanted something. I wanted that in. I wanted the popularity. If I had to hurt Earl, I would hurt Earl. I would do it. That's the essence of my betrayal. I am willing to hurt you to get something for myself. Don't doubt that Peter's tears were genuine. Don't doubt that Judas's grief was genuine. If a seventh grader still feels the sting of shame decades after upgrading his best friend, then what must Peter have felt knowing that he's denied Jesus three times, which in Hebrew culture, repetition is the form of emphasis. Uh, this is an absolute rejection of Jesus Christ. He's seeing what he's done. He's seeing what he's done to Jesus. He's realizing what he's become. And there's no reassurance with Peter that, oh, I'm not really that kind of person. I just messed up. No, he knows he's that kind of person. He is absolutely the kind of person who would deny Jesus. How do you know that? Because he denied Jesus. We shouldn't fool ourselves into telling us that we're not the kind of person who does the kind of things that we do. Um, he knows he is. And he knows Jesus knows it because he, they caught eyes together. And Judas, of course, tries to give back the cash. You know, we know from, from later in the Gospels that, that Judas throws the money back into the temple, the 30 pieces of silver. He's trying to, to buy God off or perhaps to, to undo what he's already done, even though it's too late, to, to not be the kind of person who would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, they both regret what they've done. And it's only in hindsight that we realize just how different their regret may have been. At the time, they're just both shocked to realize what they've done and what they've become. They're both feeling powerful regret. And one of them is weeping bitterly, and the other's trying to undo his evil act. So what's the difference between the two of them? Any early reader of this account would have known what happened to Judas, and they would have known what happened to Peter, because Judas spiraled downward and committed suicide. And Peter became chief among the apostles and the spokesperson throughout the book of Acts for the people of God. Both betrayed Jesus, both regretted it, and yet their life trajectories could not have been more different. And maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you are at that fork in the road where you don't realize how you got here, but you don't like here. You don't realize how you ended up in this spiritual funk or malaise, and you know you don't want to be here. You want something better, and you're not sure, and you see these two roads, one traveled by Peter, one traveled by Judas. One of these men, it's a very subtle difference, but no matter how similar their regret, they took opposite pathways forward. One of them repented, and the other did penance. And if you grew up in church, you may not know the difference between those two things. But repentance is when you turn to God and say, Lord, have mercy. And penance is when you try to bargain with God and pay him off to make up for what it is that you've done. See, repentance says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Penance says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. They're very different things. They look a lot alike. They both have grief. But they're very different. Uh, one of these 
Peter is weeping, and in hindsight, we know he's turning back to Jesus. He's coming home to Jesus and asking forgiveness because he knows he's the kind of person who betrays Jesus, and that means he needs Jesus. He needs grace. He's, the other's trying to buy God off and trying to not need a Savior by saying, I didn't do this. The only difference between Judas and Peter was God's grace, the gospel that Christ welcomes sinners. It's the only class of people Jesus came to save as sinners. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. In fact, it's the righteous who, who killed him. The only difference is grace. You see, Jesus had prayed for Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, that's what he's doing, he's turning back, Strengthen your brothers. Jesus has interceded for Peter. Just as he says, he now intercedes for us before God the Father. And he saw to it that Peter would turn back to him. Not bargain with God, not pay God off, not promise to do better, not undo what he's done. No, own it. Lay it before God and say, Jesus Christ, I am this kind of person. And I keep doing it. And I can't fix it. I need your grace. Forgive me, Lord. And if you're willing, change me. He looked to the loving eyes of Jesus, filled as they were with tenderness and mercy. As you look upon Jesus now, I want you to see in his eyes such tenderness he has for you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've become. And he only wants you to come home to him with the empty hands of faith that he might forgive, that he might restore Chad Bird describes the, the heart battle that we face when we relapse into sin and unbelief, and we all do it at some point. We're prodigals. And, and heaven and hell speak to us with very different voices when we find ourselves in that place. He describes it. He says, almost five years to the day after he returned home the first time, the prodigal son emptied his bank account, packed a few changes of clothes, and snuck off for the faraway country again. First year back, he was just glad to be home. The second year was toughest. He still couldn't get rid of the shame that chewed away at his soul. The third year, things leveled out a little. He started feeling more at home, back in sync with his former life. The fourth year, certain things began to irk him. His old itches longed to be scratched, and the fifth year came, and it happened. All the former allurements came knocking, wrapping their knuckles on his heart, his front door. And so the prodigal relapsed, went right back into the pigsty. He destroyed his life yet again. You know him, he writes, or her. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's you. That thing you swore you'd never do again, you did last night. You left the straight and narrow. Prodigals have a way of finding themselves right back in the pigsty. We're, we're sheep. And in that moment, heaven and hell contend within you. Hell shouts, now you've gone and done it, you stupid piece of garbage. You've, you're a lost, lonely, helpless cause. You're a pig, and that's all you'll ever be. That's the voice that Judas heard. But there's another voice, the voice of heaven, the familiar lilt of a dad's voice echoing down the long hallways of hope down to the deepest, darkest caverns of your pain. He doesn't accuse. 
He doesn't berate. He only mouths two simple words of heaven's redemptive love. Come home. The second time, the third time, the thousandth time, he will sprint to meet you down the street, throw his arms around you, kiss you, and command that the fat fatted calf be barbecued. The father is standing on the porch, his hand shading the sun across his eyes, scanning the horizon for the familiar image of the one who will ever remain his precious beloved child. He's speaking and saying, come home. It's the call of Jesus to us prodigals who dishonor him and abandon him and find ourselves stuck. He's asking us to come home. He's paid for your ticket. All you have to do is say yes. In the words of Thomas Akempis, Jesus says, with my hands outstretched on the cross and my body naked, I freely offered myself to God the Father for your sins. Nothing was left in me that was not given to God. In the very same way, with all your strength and love, you too should willingly offer yourself to me. What more do I ask of you than yourself? I do not care at all for anything else that you may give me. I do not seek your gift. I seek you. Just as it would not satisfy you to have anything but me, so it does not please me to have anything you may give if you do not give me yourself. Jesus who gives himself to us on the cross, washes us, makes us clean, and comes to us and says, come home. I have paved the way. I have paid the price. I am willing to come. When Jeff Ebert was five years old, back before cars had factory-installed seat belts and airbags and regulations saying that children sit in back. His family was driving home at night on a two-lane country road, and he describes what happened. He said, I was sitting on my mother's lap when another car, driven by a drunk driver, swerved into our lane and hit us head on. I don't have any memory of the collision. I do recall the fear and confusion I felt as I saw myself literally covered from head to toe with blood. Then I learned that the blood was not mine. It was my mother's. In that split second, when the two headlights glared into her eyes, she instinctively pulled me closer to her chest and curled her body around mine. And it was her body that slammed against the dashboard. It was her head that shattered the windshield. She took the impact of the collision so that I wouldn't have to. It took extensive surgery for my mother to recover from those injuries. But in a similar but infinitely more significant way, Jesus Christ took the impact for your sin and mine. He curled his body around ours so that on the cross he took the full brunt of God's judgment against sin for us so that we will never 
have to face it. For you, if you have Jesus, judgment day has already passed from the future into the past, and Christ has dealt with it on the cross fully, finally, and forever, and your sins are now forgiven. You are children of God. You have a hope and a future that not even death can take away from you because you are loved of God. You are children of God. You are his family. Friends, that's what happened on the cross, the welcome of Jesus to us sinners, to us prodigals, to us sheep who stray. When judgment was hurtling toward you at 80 miles an hour, Jesus wrapped his body around you, and it was his blood that was shed so that we might go free. And his blood now covers you from head to toe. His love has purchased you. And he's the one saying, trust me, I love you. And wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever the devil is whispering in your ear, all I want is for you to come home. I don't want your gifts. I want you. Let's pray.